Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Let's talk about what's going on in healthcare in this country. We know from our conversations with Catherine Smart, the, uh, the former immediate uh, past president of the Canadian Medical Association, that hundreds of thousands of surgeries have been postponed in this country. Hundreds of thousands. We know that uh, diagnoses are not taking place, tests are not taking place, at least not as quickly as they should, and diagnoses of cancer and, and heart disease are not being, uh, in a timely manner, uh, done. And even cancer surgeries have been have been delayed. This is a major issue. So is this the time to introduce private health care, more private health care into this country? Some provinces believe it is. There's also the story that came out on Thursday from the Canadian Medical Association, a survey of Canadian doctors, and here's the headline, Canadian Physician Workforce in Despair. Dr. Alika Lafontaine is the new president of the Canadian Medical Association. Dr. Lafontaine, thanks very much for joining us, and uh, congratulations on being elected president of the CMA and the first Indigenous person to hold the office. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Good to have you with us. Um, So let's start with a survey Thursday, released Thursday, a national survey shows Physician Workforce in Despair, CMA. You found 48% of Canada's doctors screened positive for depression. Talk to us, please, about what the, what, what does this mean to, to, the, to the medical profession and to the people who count on Canada's doctors? The National Physician Health Survey is the only national survey that looks specifically at the health of our physicians and and their role in the system. And, you know, it is quite alarming to see how the metrics have shifted since our last survey back in 2017. You know, you take the most resilient part of the system, which really is the people, and you look at physicians specifically and and you see these changes. I mean, I'm alarmed. I think Canadians should be alarmed as well. So 2017, the number was 33% uh, screening positive for depression and 48%. In 2022, not uh, not a good metric. Depression can be highly individualized. We talked about that in the last segment. Uh, but but how um, have you personally, in your travels around the country and uh, and your connections with contacts with doctors across Canada, have you seen a deterioration in just what appears to be mental health of, of Canada's doctors? I, I think the average listener knows that there's a lot of crises that seem to be converging, you know, and, and burnout's not just something that physicians are dealing with. It's, it's something the average Canadian working is, is dealing with. A lot of the things that were, were normal before the pandemic are not normal today, and the stresses are much higher. Um, you know, I, I go around and, and talk to colleagues. You know, I experience myself as, you know, frontline healthcare worker doing anesthesia in, in the OR and, and being uh, part of those integrated teams. You know, the, the pressure on us and the weight that we feel we see patients is, is a lot heavier. And it, it, patients are coming in sicker. They're coming in later because of those long wait lists. You know, expectations continue to rise. You know, we're expected to do more with less. And no matter how resilient you are, there eventually comes a point where, you know, you, you get to that breaking point. And I think we're seeing more and more across the country that we're expecting more than people can give. And it's not a reasonable place for us to be right now. No. Five million Canadians have no primary care physician. Wait times for tests and surgeries were extensive, as you said, prior to COVID. Now are literally, I believe, costing lives. 
Canadians are restricted to engaging public health, with the exception of Quebec, where individuals may purchase private health insurance because of that Supreme Court decision exclusive to Quebec, the so-called Shawili decision. It's an all-too-familiar songbook, and we're not going to be able to instantly reverse the health care decline. The question in this uh, case, Dr. Lafontaine, is... Uh, do we have a plan to begin a meaningful turnaround of health care in Canada? It has to be more than we need more funding. Hey, I 100% agree with you. And, you know, Dr. Smart, in, in her role when she was president in, in the preceding months, said the same thing. You know, we've heard from Premier Ford and the Atlantic premiers coming out of their meeting last week that, you know, the status quo is not an option and all options have to be on the table. And I think there's two ways you can take that. You can start to move towards a conversation about private care, but I would actually say to sit back and have a much broader view. We have many different systems across the country. They don't coordinate very well. People are doubling down on creating those walls and barriers instead of breaking those down. And I think if we have better coordinated care across the country, if we have you know, people sharing information more clearly if we start to have a, a pan-national approach to, you know, even something as simple as health human resources. You know, we, we can accomplish more with the same resourcing uh, and create better experiences for, for patients. At the end of the day, that's actually what we're trying to change. I uh, recently lived in Quebec for nine years, where it's a different reality. Quebecers may purchase private health care insurance, which allows and pays for patients uh, to secure health care including surgeries in the private sector. Um, and that, that is when access to care is inordinately delayed. And I, I found a, a piece of, of information that I had around for a while. Wednesday, August 17, 2005, Canadian Medical Association General Counsel. The Canadian Medical Association supports the principle that when timely access to care cannot be provided in the public health care system, the patient should be able to utilize private health insurance to reimburse the cost of care obtained in the private sector. That's policy from CMA in 2005. How does that fit in 2022? You know, I, I think we're still applying a lot of approaches that may have made sense, you know, decades past, but they, they're not designed for the care today. And so I'll, I'll underline to listeners that the the health system is not providing what we expect or what we want, and there needs to be some sort of change. But we, we have to be clear about what we actually need. So we, we often mix up a lot of things with private care. You know, I find one of the, the, the ways of describing it that makes a little bit more sense to the average listener who's not in the health system, you know, doesn't work in the health system, is, you know, this idea of outsourcing capacity versus insourcing. And I think it's really the outsourcing part that is scary for physicians like myself who provide frontline care. You know, if, if the priority is lower cost among all other priorities, which really has become an obsession for health systems over the past couple of decades, you know, outsourcing makes a ton of sense, but you have so many cons that come along with it. You have lack of control. You have communication issues. You have issues with quality. You know, it impacts the culture of medicine. And I, I find, at least myself, when, when we sit down and have these conversations this focus on lowering costs at the expense of, you know, patient experience and patient quality and patient safety, it gets worse the more that you outsource. And so I, I really hope that we have this conversation about what we're actually trying to prioritize, which is that better experience. I, I think patients in general who haven't experienced the system sometimes don't understand the differences between those two. And we, we have to involve people in this conversation. People have to become literate in 
this conversation in the same way that people focus time and attention on becoming, you know, armchair epidemiologists in the course of the pandemic. This, this affects you directly. You should be a part of the conversation. Yeah, there's there's a lot to talk about. We, you know, when we talk about private health care being brought into the country in a great to a greater extent, I just wonder whether we could attract investment in health care and attract health care professionals, doctors to Canada, if we weren't so strictly dogmatic with public health care. It's a model which exists all over the world where public health is a partner of sorts to private care. There, there has to be room for that discussion, don't you think? Well, I, I think there's there's two things in, in what you just said. The, the first is there are many health providers across the world who actually want to come to Canada to practice. You know, and, and those who've worked in other systems who actually find our publicly funded system you know, more patient-centered. And when you actually do get those pockets where we focus on patient experience, patient safety, you know, high-quality encounters, they do like the way that they provide care better. But we don't have a pan-national approach to creating that pathway for people to get into the system. We, we still have these divided approaches across provinces and territories. And so, you know, it's it's things that lead to collaboration that I think will lead to what we want. But uh, it's not it's not really the question of should we have more private or public? It's what are our choices creating in the system? You know, what are we actually trying to design? And if we can have that honest conversation and if the average listener and average Canadian can participate and become familiar with what we're actually trying to create. I, I do think we have a lot of hope for creating a better system tomorrow. Well, Dr. LaFontaine, I wish you all the very best uh, in coming, well, the actual new new president of the Canadian Medical Association. I hope we can talk to you uh, periodically throughout the uh, your time as president. I'd enjoy that. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Alika LaFontaine. Okay, so I want to come to you now. We uh, have come through two-plus years of covid and now we know our hospitals are stressed across Canada. ERs are in some cases closed on the weekends. There's a critical nurses shortage. We've heard that from nurses. Doctors are retiring faster than the general population, and now they're dealing with depression. It can take much longer, maybe you've experienced this, to have medical tests conducted now and illnesses diagnosed and treated, including cancer. The situation can be different depending on where you live in Canada. So let's talk about your experience with the Canadian healthcare system now and what your thinking is about introducing additional private health options, what they may be. Uh, Susan in North Vancouver, are you there? I'm here. Hi, Susan. Hi. My husband, a couple of years back, well, twice he's been to the hospital. Our, um, he had does diagnosed two years ago, right at the height of the pandemic, with prostate cancer. He went for a blood test. It was high. Within three months, he had tests, he had scans, he saw specialists, and he had an operation. They kept him in hospital for two days, and then they kicked him out because it was a, an outbreak on the floor below him. It was St. Paul's Hospital in, North, in uh, Vancouver. Excellent service. He's fine now. He's recovered. He's doing well. They caught it just in time. They told him he didn't need any follow-up. Last year, um, at Christmas time, he takes high blood pressure medication, and the doctor put him on the wrong medication that caused his blood pressure to drop really, really low. It was so low that he could have had a heart attack. What is, what is your thinking? We, You're, you've had a very satisfactory experience with that hospital in Vancouver. What's your thinking about introducing additional private health care components, given the fact that we have hundreds of thousands of surgeries that are delayed, that aren't taking place? Well, as long as it's paid for, because there's a lot of people that can't afford to pay. Absolutely. As long as it's paid for. And I don't believe in people. Okay. 
called go stepping ahead of somebody else just because they have private. Absolutely. I agree with you, Susan. Thank I you so much. Disabled and it wouldn't be fair. Okay. Thank you for the call. And I agree with you. And the, the model that I've always promoted is you let the private health care uh, companies come into this country and they uh, build their own offices, their own clinics, their own hospitals. They operate them at their own expense. And then anybody, anybody in this country who requires assistance, medical assistance, can choose to go to the public system or go to the, uh, to the uh, um, private system and provide, just hand in your provincial health care card, and they get paid. The, the health care, the private system, gets paid by the province the same way the public system gets paid. And if the private system can make a profit, then great. And the service improves. And if they can't, they'll go out of business. That, I think, is how it should be, my view. Carl in Keswick, Ontario. Carl's been holding on. How are you, Carl? Good afternoon, Roy. Pleasure to speak to you. My pleasure. Okay, my story is very simple. Um, I joined private medical care, which I pay for on a visa card, and I'm very happy with the results. Um, it's a combination of uh, if I have to have an operation, uh, in Toronto, when I busted up my leg, uh, it was 11 months to see the specialist sur uh, foot surgeon and 14 months afterwards for the surgery date. Uh, by writing a visa card, two and a half weeks in Cleveland, USA. That's yeah. So you didn't put any pressure on the Canadian healthcare system. You went to the United States and paid for it with your own money. I saw, I saw a doctor here in Canada who said he could not perform the operation in Canada. He could do the pre-op and the post-op, and I would go to the U.S. for the operation, um, 8,000 U.S., and I didn't care. Uh, but it was uh, two and a half weeks, and it's done. You spend overnight in the hospital, four days in a hotel, and you fly back to Toronto. Okay, now there are lots of people who can't afford that. People who are, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not attacking you. You know that people can't afford it, and so they look at the system here and they want to be treated here properly, and they have every right to be because we pay for this. This is why healthcare isn't free. Look at your taxes every 15th and 30th, or at the end of the year, April 30th. You pay for the healthcare system. Well, what happened here? I'm sorry, Carl, but let me just say this: I've since joined a medical concierge service. Yeah. Uh, last October, I needed a specialist appointment. I was given a 15-minute telephone consultation in March of 2022. Uh -huh. uh, I joined the medical concierge service. I was seen by a doctor in four days. Uh, he examined me for about an hour and a quarter, if I recall correctly. And when I asked him about it, he looked at me and said, if I was in private care, I would have had to have seen four people instead of just you. How much does that concierge service cost you, if you don't mind my asking? 3000 a year plus HST. Yeah, I've heard that too. Thank you, Carl. Appreciate that. 888 888-225-8255. What's your experience with healthcare in this country? Uh, I'm going to go to Dr. Mark Cole in just about 30 seconds in Ontario. But I just want to go back to the Supreme Court of Canada making a decision because of a man named Chauli, I forget his first name. But he took his case through the court system in Quebec, all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, arguing that he should be allowed to purchase private health insurance to reimburse him 
for the cost of care obtained in the private sector if that were necessary because of untimely delays in the public system. And the Supreme Court of Canada said, you're absolutely correct, Mr. Shirley. You should have, and you do now have the right to purchase private health insurance to reimburse you for the cost of private sector care if you don't get timely access to the public health care system. But, said the Supreme Court of Canada, this only applies to the province of Quebec, not to the rest of Canada. Dr. Mark Cole in Newmarket, Ontario. How are you, Dr. Cole? Thank you for the call, sir. Hello, Roy. Go ahead. Hello. Yes, you're on the air. Hi, Roy. Uh, thank you. I'm a, a long-time listener. Um, my situation is that I have been waiting uh, over three years for a hip replacement. I'm a veterinary orthopedic surgeon, and I know what the procedure is. I know how long it takes, and I have no understanding of why I have been sitting for this length of time without the ability to get my surgery. And in addition, I have the means to head off offshore, uh, but OHIP would not reimburse me for the cost of that surgery that would take me off the wait list and reduce the workload on the system should I choose to do that. And I, I understand the Canada Health Act says that I'm a, afforded timely care, I think three years is a little bit too long. That is much too long. Now, if you wanted to get that out-of-country care and paid for by the Ontario Health Insurance Plan, you would have to get their permission to go and have that surgery done outside Canada. And once if they granted you that, they would reimburse you. But if you're right, if you go on your own, you're on your own. But they won't. They will not grant well, I they that. I, well, I'm, I don't know. I don't know they won't, but I'm, I'm guessing do. they won't. Yes, no, they won't. I've tried. No, they so if no I way. bring my dog, if I bring my dog in to see you, Doctor Cole, and my dog has a hip issue, I don't know if you do hip replacements on dogs or not. We do. Okay. So if I bring my dog in to see you, and my dog matters to me, and I bring my dog in, and Doctor Cole says we can do a hip replacement on your dog, Roy. Here's how much it's going to cost you. Never mind. The, the, don't you don't need to tell me how much it is. How quickly could you do it? Uh, in a week. There you go. And you've been waiting three years. Three years. Any idea how much longer you have to wait? I have no idea. They're telling me there's hundreds of thousands in the backlog, but I, I think I'm probably just going to bite the bullet as soon as it's safe for me to travel with COVID, and I'm going to go to Thailand because uh, luckily I have the means, but few people do. And so right. what are they doing? They're sitting on crutches just like me, and they're going to sit another two years. Yeah. You have people who have diagnosed cancer, can't get the surgeries, diagnosed heart issues, can't get the surgeries, because it's overloaded. The system is overloaded. And it's, it's just throwing, well, you tell me, is the solution throwing more money at it? No. Um, I agree with you completely that the private sector can work in parallel with the public, and they can complement each other, and based on workflows that have been and increase and, and decrease, they can help each other out to get people the health care yeah. that the Canada Health Act says that they can. Otherwise, they should just all call themselves Labrador Retrievers 
and go see your vet and get a surgery next week. <laughs> I remember speaking with a private health care company in the United States on the air. This is quite a few years ago. And I asked them about this thing I suggested. Uh, would you come to Canada? Would you consider coming to this country and building at your own expense clinics and hospitals um, based on the model that exists in the public sector? So you would staff them, you would build them, you would equip them, you would run them on your own dime. And then if patients came to you, they would provide you with their provincial health card and you would run it through as you do as the public system does. And you would build the province exactly the same way for exactly the same amount um, as the public system does. Do you think you could survive and profit in this reality? Answer was immediate. Yes. Right. Well, well the, the, the answer is shown by, for example, veterinary medicine. We don't get any money from an OHIP outsource, um, but still the care comes quickly and it's very high quality and everybody makes enough money to make a living. The Mass Casualty Commission hearing in Nova Scotia. Brenda Lucky was on the stand, the commissioner of the RCMP, as well as the former commanding officer of the Nova Scotia RCMP, and Chief Superintendent Darren Campbell of the Nova Scotia RCMP testified earlier that the families of the 22 victims are owed an uncompromised and comprehensive investigation. The question is, do the families believe that, in fact, is taking place? Remember, the families not long ago were talking about walking out of the hearings and no longer participating because of how they were being treated and how the investigation into the murders of their loved ones was proceeding, or perhaps more accurately, not proceeding. And just remember this. If fate were to tragically collect you into such a horrible reality, it would be you who would be demanding what the families of the 22 murder victims in Nova Scotia are calling for. Truth, responsibility, no internal finger-pointing, and no side events like the Liberals' gun ban being part of the picture. By the way, just an observation. Why was Commissioner Lucky not in uniform during the hearings? She's representing the RCMP at a mass shooting inquiry into the deaths of 22 Canadians. Why was the Commissioner not in uniform? We're joined by Scott McLeod, his brother Sean, and his brother's partner, Alana Jenkins were victims of the murder assault by Gabriel Wartman, and uh, um, Sean and Alana were correctional officers, so they were in law enforcement, and my guest Scott McLeod is also in corrections, a correctional officer. Scott, uh, thank you for joining us. Um, Brenda Lucky this week, what was the overall impression the RCMP commissioner made on you? Well, thanks for having me on the show. Um, now, with Brenda Lockie on there, um, I sit there, I listen to uh, listen to her answer questions that were posed by all the lawyers that were present that had the questions, and the at the end of it, she she apologized for the RCMP for not meeting the expectations of the families. It's, I mean, I'll, I'll always accept an apology, but when there's, 
it's not what we're looking for. Um, we're looking for answers and results right now. Um, I, I want to see what comes out of this. I mean, you can tell me you're sorry all you want, and I appreciate the offer, but until things are done, um, because everything that she was asked, she said that it was this person's responsibility and this person's responsibility ultimately as the commanding officer of the RCMP for the country, you are responsible for all of it. So, you know, they got to start looking at that. They can't just point it towards everybody else. It's always somebody else. It's no, no one, no one is willing to take any responsibility for anything. Yeah. The, the commissioner challenged what has been testified to by Nova Scotia RCMP officers about how the commissioner behaved on a conference call with those Nova Scotia RCMP leaders and communications director, Leah Scanlon. They said, they testified, the commissioner bullied and demeaned them and pressured the Nova Scotia RCMP to release information on the firearms used by Wardman. The commissioner responded that the testimony of Leah Scanlon, she said this, quote, I don't know where she get, would get that view. That's just not how it happened. End of quote. Uh, who do you believe is being more accurate about what took place on that call, Scott? Well, if you sit down and do it as uh, the police would do looking at evidence, when you start looking at the common denominators, you've got three, at least three senior officials saying she did this, and she says, no, it's not. It, it's that common denominator, you know, so everybody's ganged up now to write up reports to debunk anything that the commissioner has to say. Uh, I mean, that just doesn't, that doesn't seem completely right. I'm not saying that everybody's completely right or completely wrong, but based on everything you see, it, it tends to lead you towards the the fact that things were done and now people are trying to backpedal to get out of it. Yeah, the one thing that I can't forget is that immediately afterward, immediately after that April day in 2020, there was no promise. There was no commitment to an inquiry. There was going to be a public inquiry. There were going to be three individuals who were going to come up with their, who were going to study the case and then issue a report. Even the prime minister would not assure a public inquiry in the early going. And here you are as families, and uh, you've been so frustrated that you've actually at times thought of leaving uh, your participation, giving up your participation in the inquiry. So uh, it's it's just not providing you with, with, what you, with what you expect or hasn't so far. Am I correct about that? That is correct. I mean, and, I'd like, you know, I know that certain things can't be changed or fixed, mm -hmm. but finding out the evidence they they talk about all the investigation and act activity that they're doing to figure stuff out so i myself with my brother's the situation with my brother's murder they're they're not going to get any information from that area because even after the 911 calls from that area were made there was nobody attending the scene for i believe it was 3 hours after the call so the house burnt right, right to the foundation so i mean i know i'm not going to get information on that but there's a number of other 
issues that have been brought up or been found. And, you know, the only thing the mandate is going to let them do, apparently, is uh, put recommendations in place. And um, I've been asked for some of my recommendations, and I have put forth uh, one being I would like to see a, let's call it a committee for now, of non-policing and non-government persons for them to be held accountable for to report in on the progress of whatever the recommendations are put forth because it just sounds like they they even talk way back to Marathorpe in 2005 and that it doesn't see some of this stuff seems to just fall off the table well I think if that's the case if things are falling off the table they need to have a, a body to answer to that does not have the government influence on one side or RCMP influence on the other or any policing agency, but an independent, and they're going to be the ones to be able to bring things forth if they are going to be forthcoming and say, yes, we're going to do this, or here's what we can get done of this, and here's when we're going to have it done. These people will be able to see it and present it to the public versus I can sit down and say, yeah, I completed all my tasks and turn and walk away. And I have no idea because I can't see anything. Yeah. You don't want turf protection taking place in in an inquiry of this incredible magnitude. Sean, I read, I read about, uh, about uh, Scott, I read about uh, Sean and his life partner, both of them remarkable people, both corrections officers, both dedicated to family and friends and kids. Alana was the life of family parties, loved to sing, play golf. Your brother, Sean, was an accomplished rugby player, and his daughter followed his footsteps in the sport. Sean had taken ERT training, and both Sean and Alana were well-respected in their jobs in law enforcement. So we hear headlines like 22 people were murdered, and then we find out about the life of the murderer, but the lives of his victims are lost in bare-bones statistics I find far too often. Can you just give us a... I don't know if this is if I should do this or not, but can you give us a little bit of a snapshot of of, of Sean and Alana? Well, Sean, Sean and Alana, they they uh, they were very social, um, always inviting. They they were always having people over to their home. Uh, they had a huge, big piece of property. They once a year they used to hold a, a big weekend get together. And I mean, people were able to put tents up or they put people up. Um, always, always, uh, Sean was always doing stuff. He, uh, my mother, when she was sick, he was, he would have days or he'd drive from Wentworth into Truro and take my mother to appointments in Halifax. Uh, spend the whole day, like helping mom. They were always going over to Alana's parents' place as well to visit with them and, enjoy time. Um, Sean had a granddaughter, uh, thought the world of, and, you know, Sean was also looking at, he had almost 25 years in service and was talking. It's almost time to be able to pull the plug and then just go and enjoy life or get another part-time something just to do something. But he enjoyed outdoor stuff, fishing and hunting. So, I mean, I know had he been able to retire, he would have been 
sitting on the river in on his property and just enjoying life and enjoying family and friends. And Alana the same, because um, that was just the way they were. They were very, very social and outgoing with everybody. So this is this is this is what we're talking about. We're talking about your brother, about Alana, and we're talking about twenty other people who lost their lives. Were two two workmen. The reason they're holding this inquiry is to respect the the lives of the twenty two to hold accountable those who need to be held accountable in whatever sphere they're in and to make changes. This is why it's going on. Uh, Brenda Lucky did, according to a story, say that she thought she'd gone too far criticizing the, the RCMP and Nova Scotia members in that phone call, and she admitted, when I think about it before I go to bed, I honestly can't sleep. She told that to the Globe and Mail. Tim Mills, who led the RCMP ERT tactical team on the night of the, of the murders, told us on the air on this program in an exclusive interview, the team was under-equipped and under-supported in following the terrible night that not one senior RCMP officer had bothered to check in on the emotional well-being of any of the tactical team members. Do you have a do you have confidence, Scott, that um, significant and valuable changes will come out of this commission hearing? Do, do you have Do you have a sense that that when it's all over, something meaningful will happen? Well, I, I'm. I'm hoping that that is the outcome. Um, can I guarantee it? I can't guarantee anything. Um, some of the comments that I've, statements uh, Commissioner McDonald put to Brenda Lucky the other day, asking her to champion this and do what she can, you know, be a, be a leader with getting the, going into these recommendations. And I mean that that was impressive to me because I mean a lot of us have you know we're a little wishy washy on how things are going to come out. Uh, Commissioner Fitch uh, commented to Brenda Lucky as well um, about how disturbing it was to think that you know uh, they commented about Dave McNeil um, shouldn't be calling uh, Superintendent Lucky because he's or not lucky, but uh, leather, because he's really high up there. Well, in the overall scheme of things, uh, a chief of police corps, the police force, wherever, be it Toronto or Halifax or Toronto, those chiefs of police are essentially in the same position that Brenda Lucky's in. They oversee the entire force. That is their job. So, you know, there it, it came out saying that they don't feel to me it sounds like they don't feel that any kind of municipal law enforcement is anywhere near as good both Halifax and Truro reached out offering resources the RCMP never got back to any of them until way late for anything so there has to be something brought in line so that there's not a who's better than who situation yeah. And, you know, just it, it, they've got to come back to the fact, I think they just need to get back to good old-fashioned police work instead of worrying about who's, who's better and I'm higher up the food chain than you are. I saw a story the other day, I think it was Thursday, and I just was going through some, some notes and came across this. 
that the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, a survey they released on the 26th of April of this year, entitled Ontario Student Drug Use and Health Survey, shows, listen to this, 18% of students, 18%, so almost one in five, reported they had seriously contemplated suicide in the past year. 59% of students depressed. 39% say their mental health is worse. And while this is an Ontario study, I imagine the picture in other provinces is likely similar. And with the new school year just around the corner, I thought we should speak about this. And our guest is uniquely qualified. Mark Hennick is a mental health strategist. He attempted suicide at 15 years of age, was saved by a stranger. We've talked to Mark about this, and we'll again. His TED Talk video about his suicide attempt has been watched millions of times worldwide. He served as the national spokesperson for the Canada-wide Faces of Mental Illness campaign for the Canadian Mental Health Association. His book and podcast are titled So-Called Normal, and Mark Hennick is the CEO of Strategic Mental Health Consulting. Coincidentally, World Suicide Prevention Day is just a few days away, September the 10th. Mark, thank you very much uh, for joining us. How do we address that one of five school students seriously contemplated suicide, essentially, in the last year? Kids seriously contemplating suicide, almost one in five. Yeah, you know, Roy, thanks for having me, first of all, to have this really important conversation. And when you think about kids in particular, I mean, look at your average 10-year-old, uh, and a third of their life has been spent so far in a, in a global pandemic. So really, their frame of reference, most of their memory that they have, uh, has been through this incredibly traumatic, unusual time, even though we're largely out of it now, at least in terms of the social restrictions. So we need to appreciate that, that kids, all they can really remember uh, of the last few years uh, has been a limitation to their social interaction and a really high stress around them at all times. So it's almost expected. We've been expecting this wave of mental health problems and struggles to come all along, and now it's finally bearing fruit. One of the things that we've uh, talked about on this program, I think with you as well, is that when you're talking about somebody who is 10, 12, 15, 16 years of age, you're not talking about somebody who has a wealth of life experience, not somebody who has a, a whole um, a file, if you will, of experiences in life. It's a very small sample size of experiences. And the and you, you can speak to this from your own experience, I, I, I'm sure, that when when life becomes unmanageable and the future looks... Um, uncertain the response to that is i can't deal with it am i, am I close yeah. yeah you absolutely are and you're right i mean even adults though uh, i think have a, cer a certain present bias you know the things that we're experiencing today take precedence over stuff that we've experienced in the past and especially over the ability to to conceptualize or try to conceptualize what might happen in the future so we often think and especially if you're a kid we think that how things are right now are how they've always been and how they always will be. So if things are really hard right now, kids don't have a whole lot of frame of reference, as you mentioned, uh, to, to think that it'll be any other way. So that's why it's so important for adults and role models in particular to inspire hope in kids, that they don't know how to hope yet. Uh, so to be able to reassure them that, no, this is okay, you are resilient, you are strong, uh, and we can get through this. That, you know, that's a lot easier to do when adults themselves are healthy too. And unfortunately, we're actually seeing declines in adult mental health as well.
Yes, we are. How would you describe uh, or define seriously considering suicide? Because that's the term in the CAMH study, seriously considering suicide. Is it enough to occasionally think, I don't see the point of living any longer, or is there far more engaged than an occasional stray thought in that direction? Yeah, look, I mean, suicidal thinking or just passive suicidal thoughts are actually a lot more common than people think. And we're so afraid to talk about this topic that not a lot of people realize that most people think about ending their lives at one point or another, uh, some more often than others. When it becomes more concerning is when they start to develop plans, when they start to obsess or ruminate on it or think about it more than they don't, uh, and then when they start to make attempts. We know that suicide attempts are one of the biggest predictors of later completed suicide. So that's why we, you know, I, it breaks my heart when I see stories of people who are actively suicidal going into or trying to go to hospital and then being turned away or needing to wait for 15 hours in the waiting room, as I did when I was a teenager. Because these are the kids that end up killing themselves. Uh, and that is, that is something that's a part of the system that we know how to fix. Uh, and it's a tragedy that people are dying so unnecessarily by suicide, kids especially. So, so kids are going to the hospital. Kids are reporting, uh, d- d- presenting to medical uh, professionals and saying, I, I feel suicidal, I, or whatever the terminologies they use. And they're pushed aside? They're pushed into the, in the waiting line? Is that it? It absolutely happens, especially with young girls. They're seen as it's just a it's just a phase, or they're seen as being uh, attention seeking or being dramatic, uh, and sometimes they're turned away. But look, we know that uh, even including adults, uh, the majority of people who end their lives have actually talked to a healthcare provider within the 30 days before they ended their life. So this is not a pro- it's not exclusively a problem that's all in the sick person's head that suicide is a public health issue, that this is a systemic problem that so many people are falling through the cracks. Can you share with us, please, and you've done this in the past, but can you remind us, please, of how the suicidal ideation began with you, when it began, and when you started to decide you you were going to act on it? Yeah, this is so personal for me, and that's why I do it professionally now, because it's all I really know how to do, is to draw from this deep personal well uh, of experiencing uh, suicidal ideation as a kid from as young as I can remember. I mean, I, I started trying to kill myself when I was only 12 years old, but I was thinking about it and, and, and ruminating on it for years before that point, probably as, as young as nine or 10 years old. Uh, and I was in and out of hospital. I was one of those high service users or frequent flyers, as they're known uh, 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 colloquially in the system, uh, who every time I went in and asked for more help, the less help it seemed that I got. I got seen as the boy who cries wolf. Uh, and I think that's why I kept escalating in my behavior and was in and out of hospital more than uh, a half a dozen times. I was on more than a dozen medications over the course of four or five years. And if it wasn't for a stranger who, when I was 15 years old, pulled me off of the edge of a bridge while I was in the middle of a suicide attempt, I wouldn't be here today. That, that moment changed my life to, to meet a stranger who could care about me uh, just because I was a human being. And that's, I think, why I've built the career that I have, to try to be like that stranger who saved my life. So you really need to pay attention to what uh, kids are saying and what their actions are, what they're doing, what they're telling you, what they're telling healthcare professionals. Don't ever ignore it. I, I was hesitating to relate this experience, but, but I will because I think it's really important, and important because you mentioned what happens when young people sometimes go to hospitals. Uh, I was sitting in for um, for a host uh, in Alberta a few years ago, 
And there was a story of uh, a young man who'd gone to the to uh, to hospital, and he presented as having suicidal thoughts. Mm-hmm. And apparently, he had uh, he had done this previously, and uh, they they put him alone. In, they put him in a room by himself. Yeah. And uh, and went in and checked on him uh, every hour or so. And after a while, he asked for a, a note, a piece of paper, and a pencil. So they provided him a piece of paper and a pencil. Hmm. And he wrote a suicide note, and then he took his own life in the hospital. Yeah. And I will never forget, the uh, his mom called into that program after we were talking about it, because it was a, a leading news story, and I will never forget speaking to his mother. And I do believe, I do hope, that that phone call from his mother that day will have made a difference with uh, with people who had similar thoughts or similar concerns or or were not taking someone seriously. But it's one of those moments, Mark, you never forget. Yeah. And, you know, that's those moments are actually more common than people realize, too, that a significant number of suicides happen in the hospital where you think it would be the least possible to do. Um, but there have been promising initiatives like one called the Zero Suicide Movement, which have been focused on reducing suicide in healthcare settings. Uh, and that really focuses on treating the depression uh, that's, un- that's often an underlying factor. But also, like you mentioned here, too, sharing the stories of the, of the collateral damage. That really impacts people. You know, when, when you're suicidal, so much of that stuff just fades away. You're not able to really appreciate what you're doing and who you're truly going to be hurting because you're sick. But I think if we can break through and we can really let people know that they're loved, that they're cared about, that they do matter uh, before they die, uh, then that's what makes all the difference. I think that's what saves lives. Yeah. Mark, I want to ask you about so-called normal in a moment. But when you have 60 percent, six out of 10 students saying they are depressed, how do you think a school-age student would define being depressed? What does that mean to them? Yeah, you know, we have so much more awareness now around what mental health and mental illness actually are. That most studies have shown that millennials and younger, Gen Z and younger, uh, are much more likely to self-identify that they have a mental health problem or illness because they they often know the diagnostic criteria. Uh, and they're also much more likely to reach out for help, to talk to their doctor, to tell a parent, a teacher. Um, that's all good news. But it does mean that it does make the numbers uh, tick up a little bit. So a kid who might be struggling with depression, very often we see persistent sadness. You know, depression and sadness aren't the same thing, but it's a matter of degree, intensity, and duration. Uh, So persistent sadness, very often they'll be less interested in the things that they used to be interested in. There's very commonly difficulty with attention. And there's all sorts of physiological symptoms of depression as well. Uh, GI upset, nausea, uh, sleep and appetite are all affected. So generally what we see is a a turning down or a literal depression across a number of different uh, physiological and psychological factors. Okay, 39% say their mental health has become worse in the preceding year. Are the 59% who say they were depressed... And the 39% who said their mental health has become worse, possibly be in a mindset, I hope not, but could they be in a mindset to be influenced by the 18% who admit to seriously considering suicide? You know, they very well could be. And I think this also points to the uh, fact that depression, like most mental health problems and illnesses, the vast majority, in fact, 
they're not exclusively neurological uh, or biological disorders. There's no question. They, the, we have you know 50 years of research to look at the biological underpinnings of mental illnesses. But our mental health is intrinsically tied with our social environment and with our, with our styles of thinking as well. Uh, so when our environment changes as dramatically as it has, it's going to have these kinds of impacts on our mental health. This is expected. That also helps us then to intervene in ways that aren't necessarily always and exclusively medical. You know, just stay on your meds or just go to hospitals. Some people do need that, but many don't. So that's why we need to be able to support psychotherapy. We need to support social interventions as well because they're evidence-based and they work. Okay. Now, your book and your podcast are titled So-Called Normal. Is, is there a normal, um, and, and why so-called normal? Why did you call it that? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what I want to exp- wanted to explore. What does normal mean? Because I had spent certainly all of my childhood and adolescence and well into my adulthood wishing that I was normal, wishing that I was like all those other people outside of me who seemed like they had all their stuff together, that, that everybody seemed like they were happy and healthy and normal. Then as I started to dig into it, especially with the podcast, but also in, you know, in researching my book and talking to my big Irish Catholic family, I realized that normal was such a subjective thing that we all have our own definition of it. And we don't actually even all necessarily agree on what normal is. We're just moving through the world on on a sort of a tenuous uh, balance of of what we think normal is. So I found that it's highly subjective uh, and what one person's normal is often isn't uh, what somebody else's is. So normal is what we want to be. I think it is. And it's what you're most, in some ways, comfortable being. All normal means it's your baseline. It's your set point. Uh, and it turns out what I've, what I've loved learning, both for myself and to help others, is that you can change your normal, that your normal isn't necessarily genetically or biologically determined, uh, at least not entirely, uh, that through small habit changes, through environmental changes, you can change your entire life and what you come to know as normal. So, uh, you know, my uh, seat of the pants definition of taking care of yourself in that sense is I've never cared what people think about me. I've never cared what people say about me. Never, ever, never crosses my mind. Couldn't care less. Can't do anything about it, so why should I worry about it? Is that just a, a fundamentally sound way of approaching things? I think to a degree, but also remember, Roy, we're social. Well, you know what I mean. Right? You know what I mean. Yeah, sure. I, I think everybody cares to a degree, uh, but how much you actually let it seep into your psyche and influence your decisions, that's something else. And this, you know, to tie it back to the conversation about children and adolescents that we're having earlier, um, kids are particularly impacted what, by what other people think about them because they're just trying to figure out who they are themselves. Yeah, so the I, way that been... I like to do that. The way that I like to do that is to figure out who I am, and when you know who you are, you're less susceptible to be influenced by the opinions of others. What I should have said is I never cared if people think badly about me. If I'm not doing anything wrong or I know I'm living up to my standards of life, of life and my standards of behavior and my standards of ethics, then I don't really care whether people like me or not. Just That's right. Yeah. And always being able to be flexible, to learn, to be teachable, to admit when you're wrong. I think that's all important parts of it, too, that come from that external feedback as well. Okay. So let, let's put it this way. Like yourself. Be, be, be good to yourself. Like yourself. Like yourself and, and know yourself. Never settle uh, for for what you think it is right now always has to be. That doesn't have okay. to be that way. We're always growing and changing. 
this is the story that is, well, no matter where you are, it's a headline story. And that is that the affidavit, which formed the basis for the search of former U.S. President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence in Florida, released yesterday, heavily redacted, I think it was 21 of 28 pages was redacted. The uh, Department of Justice says materials marked top secret were included in what was found in Mr. Trump's residence, and uh, materials contained information that could threaten national security. This has created or widened a rift that existed already in the American political scheme. Professor Terry Madonna joins us, Franklin and Marshall College in Pennsylvania. His academic specialty is the American presidency, American political parties, and political behavior. So all the bases covered. Terry, thank you very much for joining us. I always appreciate the conversations. How are you? Hey, it's my pleasure. Actually, I'm now at uh, back at Millersville University as senior fellow uh, for political affairs, but my uh, areas of specialty are American politics and the American presidency. I presume I should have mentioned that to you when we chatted, but uh, but you're on to something here. The Mar-a-Lago search has let me, created... Let me, can, I, can I just start with this question? In, in our wildest dreams, even after Hillary Clinton's 33,000 emails, and private non-secure server in her home. Would you ever have considered there would be a time or a situation like this that would involve the American presidency? All of the all of the uh, the fighting, the to and fro fighting between the Democrats and the Republicans, notwithstanding. No, look, this is unprecedented. This has never occurred before in American history. You're exactly on to uh, an incredibly important element in these activities and. And involving a past president of ours. And now we've had presidents who've gotten themselves in trouble, impeached in the House of Representatives, but not removed in the Senate. And in fact, the biggest one of all times was Richard Nixon, uh, who resigned facing certain conviction in the Senate, which would have had him removed from office for uh the cover-up of the break-in and the Watergate complex, and his vice president, or the vice president of the United States, I should say, Jerry Ford, pardoned him. But nothing of the nature of this search. And you're right about something else that you mentioned a moment ago. This has created an incredible, incredible uh, series of controversies, divisions, and partisanship in our country. The this has actually motivated the Trump supporters who believe that the search was illegal, who believe that the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the Justice Department are out to get their president, to get Donald J. Trump. And of course, uh, most Americans don't feel that way, but that's heavily oriented by Democrats and independent voters. So this has deeply divided our country. And as I put it in other interviews, even though they've gotten a lot of specifics in this affidavit, uh, and uh, and many of us believe that this is leading to a prosecution of Donald J. Trump, a prosecution of Trump. And remember, we have that January 6th select committee still doing its work. And there you have another situation which could lead to a prosecution of an American, of a former. So, so let, let me let me get you let me get this straight. You have studied, and your, your area of expertise is the American presidency, 
American political parties, and uh, American politics. You believe that this situation that exists today will, do you believe that it will lead to a prosecution, criminal prosecution of President Trump? I'll put it, here's the way I put this. It wouldn't surprise me if it does. I'm not predicting that, uh, but I'm saying if he gets prosecuted, it would not it would not surprise me. Uh, and, you know, without getting into all the details about the records, you know, they have intelligence secrets. They have classified information. What what were what else were uh, were in the uh, papers that the FBI secured? And I want to tell you something else that that Trumpites really, uh, really found. Uh, I'll say annoying. And that's an understatement. Uh, number one, we were originally believed that Trump was cooperating. You follow me? Cooperating with the FBI, providing information. And he did turn over some uh, documents. And number two, why did why did the Justice Department here and the FBI wait weeks if this was so significant? I'm talking to you now about Trump's what Trump's Search. supporters are saying. We'll take a look at the other side in a minute. I'm, 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 I'm going to be objective about this. Why did they wait so long? If indeed these were classified documents, top secrets, and other files at Mar-a-Lago. Lago. So, Terry, you were about to give us both sides of this. And just before you do that, just before you... No, go ahead, Terry. Well, there's one other element, and that was the actual raid itself. I mean, 30 FBI, heavily armed, heavily armed FBI agents and pictures of these folks, video, I should say, of them carrying these weapons into a, basically an empty uh, residence of the president down in Palm Beach, a former president, I should say. And so that's another thing that uh, on the Trump side that they argued was offensive. Now, on the other side, if you want me to go there. The records, without doubt, had top and top secrets uh, of an, an intelligence nature that were not supposed to be removed, if you will, from the White House. That's one of the uh, aspects in the affidavit, which you accurately pointed out, is necessary in order to get a judge to issue a warrant. And the other thing is that Trump had more than one opportunity, multiple opportunity to give the documents back, and he refused to do so. So I thought he was negotiating with them. That, 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 well, he says that boils, his critics are saying that boils down to obstruction, mm. that he should have turned these back over. So if we look, if we look at all of this that's going on now, Terry, and, uh, and you're, you wouldn't be surprised, you said, if criminal charges were filed against Donald Trump. So that changes the entire paradigm in the United States. Seventy million people voted for this man in 2020. Uh, the presidency changes. The mood in the United States changes. Seventy million people, maybe not all of them are angry, but many of them will be. What does that do to, to, to just, uh, you know, the working, the ability for your country to work positively? Well, it's, it's deeply divisive. I mean, look, we have a midterm election coming up in his, typically in American midterm election since the end of World War II, the party that doesn't hold the presidency has lost 17 of 19. 
17 of 19. Mm-hmm. And more often than not, it's a referendum on the incumbent president. Joe Biden's job performance was has been very, very low. Now, it's rising a bit as inflation is diminished a tad and gasoline price at the, you know, you go to fill up your tank, it, it, they've fallen a bit. Uh, and the president is now out campaigning around the country for uh, for his uh, what he would argue is his successful agenda. And but here's what most analysts are saying that I follow. It looks like the Democrats, it's the Senate is 50, 50, 50 R's, 50 D's. I'll put it that way, or 50 people who caucus with the D's and 50 who caucus with the R's. And the vice president gets to break the tie, Kamala Harris. It now looks like the Democrats could pick up three or four seats. But over in the House of Representatives, in which the Democrats have 222 seats, it takes 218 to be a majority. Most analysts still believe the Republicans could pick up the House of Representatives, okay. not by 15, 20 seats, which perhaps would have been possible six, eight months ago. But, you know, let's say six, seven, eight, something in that range. Okay. So I under, understand that, Terry. But what are the chances, given all of this? And we're looking at uh, your midterms with interest on November the 8th. But what are the chances? What's the reality here? Or what is your expectation about Donald Trump? All of this that's going on, included in the into the into the uh, into the goulash. What are the chances that Donald Trump will actually be a candidate for president in 2024? And what are the chances he'll actually be the nominee for the Republicans? Yeah, yeah. That well, I would say right now he's would be the favorite to win the nomination. After Mar-a-Lago, many analysts thought that he would declare, announce. He has hinted but not formally announced yeah, for the presidency. Yeah. But after Mar-a-Lago, that he would then announce he has not so, done so yet. So, my fo- Terry, my follow-up question yeah. for you is this. You're the analyst of the presidency, the political parties, and political activity in the United States. Given everything that's going on, if Donald Trump does announce before any charges, criminal charges are laid, if they're going to be laid, right. does Donald Trump have everything considered here a chance of winning in 2024, if you believe that the GOP will move him in as the, as the nominee, given everything that's going on in the absence of criminal charges being laid, can he win the presidency in 2024? What do you think? Well, I mean, right now I would think probably not. But again, you're, you're asking me a question in one of the most unpredictable and highly charged and controversial environment in modern American history. It's just, and I'm not... Uh, begging off an answer, I'm merely telling you how complicated this all is. We have a very popular, uh, there's a popular Republican governor uh, in Florida, DeSantis, who has been traveling now around the country campaigning for Republicans uh, for the, the, in their primary uh, elections here in order to become uh, candidates for governor and, co- and, and members of the House and Senate. And it's it's likely that he he would run, and he's pretty popular. It's too early to know whether Donald J. Trump will be the nominee of the party. We don't even know for sure that Joe Biden, Joe Biden has to say, every president has to say they're going to seek reelection at least until the midterm election is over, because okay. the failure, if, if you say, I'm not running, that's, isn't that admitting that your administration's been a failure? 
Well, yeah, or you're getting a tremendous amount of pressure from inside the party to not run, yeah. which I suspect is happening. But, but look, uh, we have about a minute here, Terry. Give, look, we're looking ahead to November now. But then beyond November, you're looking, this will happen very quickly. You're looking at 2024, the development of the, the primaries, and then whether Trump runs again, whether Biden runs again. Sure. Your country, sure. the, the United States, which has been the most stable democracy for so many decades, for so many years, no, centuries, uh, your country looks to me to be a country that is on the cusp of real internal massive divisions which could play out in the 24 election. Am I right? Oh, you're 100% correct. And I mean, the number of Americans in poll after poll who are very dissatisfied with the direction of our country, who think that things aren't going to go well, is at record levels. And I don't know, you know, the economy is, is still the most important issue headed by inflation in our country. But we have immigration, a, a complex immigration system on our southern border. We have uh, crime, yeah, you've got uh, a lot going place, on. Uh, the murder rate. Uh, you, yeah. But you're you're absolutely right. I mean, it's too it's too hard to know exactly. There is there is a there's still almost too much to consider. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to the Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.